హలో లిసనర్స్ వెల్కమ్ టు ది ఎయిత్ ఎపిసోడ్ ఆఫ్ సీజన్ వన్ ఆఫ్ ఇతిహాస అన్ ఇండెక్ హిస్టరీ పాడ్కాస్ట్ అండ్ యూర్ లిజనింగ్ టు నరేంద్ర విక్రమ్ సీజన్ వన్ ఇస్ ఆల్ అబౌట్ ది విజయనగర ఎంపైర్ ఇన్ ద లాస్ట్ ఎపిసోడ్ వీ డౌన్ ఇన్ టు ద ఇంపార్టెన్స్ ఆఫ్ టెంపుల్స్ ఇన్ సిక్స్టీన్త్ సెంచురీ విజయనగర ఇట్ సా ది వేరియస్ రోల్స్ ది ప్లేడ్ ఇన్ ఇట్స్ హైలీ అబాల్వ్డ్ ఇట్ కాంప్లెక్స్ సొసైటీ వీ సా ఇన్ డీటెయిల్ హౌ ది మిడీవల్ టెంపుల్స్ ఇన్ విజయనగర ఎటైన్ గ్రేటర్ సిగ్నిఫికెన్స్ as centers of fine arts, religion, education and banking. We also saw how Devadasis and courtesans of the antiquity were respected and gained affluence, and that they were nothing like the flawed narratives which were spun around them unfairly in our current times. If you haven't listened to the episode 7, then I would highly recommend that before proceeding with this episode. It would be really helpful. but you still can hear this episode as is in today's episode we will understand the importance of tirumala tirupati alayam to the vijayanagara rulers its polity and citizens we will also go in depth into the fascinating aspects of the tirupati temple and the powerful role it played on both the economic and political front just like an ardent devotee's affection for the divine never gets extinguished so do the earthen lamps in front of the sacred idol of the beloved deity Sri Venkateshwara in the Sanctum Sanctorum of Tirumala Tirupati Temple. Nobody knows who lit them and when exactly, but they have been kept burning since last 1700 years approximately. It is said that they have been lit sometime around 380 when the deity's idol was unearthed by a goat herder. who then reported that to the king Tondaiman who was a vassal of Pandya dynasty from what we understand this king then built a structure to house the idol and since then one king or the other has been building upon and upgrading the structure there are 30 to 40 million people visiting the Tirumala Tirupati temple every year and close to 35 million rupees every day is donated by them as an offering to the deity The popularity and importance of this temple is well established today and this has been the case for hundreds of years now since it was established but the first recorded endowment to the temple was in 966 AD by the Pallava dynasty queen Samavai It's recorded that she donated many jewels and 23 acres of land to the temple in order to use the revenues generated from the land for the rituals and celebrations in the temple The Pallavas, Cholas and Vijayanagara rulers were ardent devotees of the temple. But it was during the Vijayanagara empire that the temple acquired a very high status in the pantheon of sacred temples back in 15th to 16th centuries. While the Tirupati temple was also under the patronage of the predecessors of Vijayanagara, it's very clear from the overwhelming evidence that it was only under the umbrella and patronage of Vijayanagara empire did the temple's eminence, wealth, reputation and influence spread far and wide, not just across the empire but also across the rest of India. The fact that even today the Tirupati temple is the richest temple in the world, that credit goes a lot to not just the unshakable faith of its devotees but also the Vijayanagara rulers who showered it with gifts, wealth, lands, villages and in the form of endowments over the period of empire's existence. We saw in the last episode how the South India was the victim of three back-to-back invasions 
at the Delhi Sultanate during the early decades of 14th century and the resultant turmoil that led to the collapse of the erstwhile Pandyas and Kakatiyas who were already on a terminal decline by then. These invasions had led to many temples and sacred places in South India to go through troubled times. We also saw in the last episode how the Meenakshi Amman temple priests had to hide the original Shiva Lingam behind a wall cleverly and fool the invading forces with a decoy in its original place. During this period, Tirupati temple played an important role due to its secure and steep hilltop location that was a challenge for any army to climb. It's well recorded that the priests of Sri Ranganatha Swami temple which is located in Sri Rangam near Tiruchirappalli Tamil Nadu had rushed the sacred idols of Sri Namperumal to Tirupati during the second Islamic invasion in 1323 it was in Tirupati that these sacred idols belonging to Sri Rangam temple were kept for safe keeping till 1371 AD it was only after kumara kampanna's conquest of the madurai sultanate in 1378 ad the deity was brought back and reconsecrated into the rebuilt temple sri rangam temple is also known as tiruvuranga tirupati even to this day there is a thanksgiving ritual between sri rangam temple and the tirumala tirupati temple as part of this ritual the sri rangam temple sends gifts to its counterpart which help protect its deities idols during invasions as a reciprocal ritual the tirupati temple sends gifts to sri rangam on the auspicious day of kaisika ekadasi every year it was only after the rise of vijayanagara empire and the waning of the delhi sultanate's influence down south after 1336 that the hindu temples like these were much safer and it's from this point that the tirumala tirupati temple gains a special place in the eyes of successive vijayanagara rulers now that we have an idea about the kind of atmosphere in which some of these temples of utmost importance to the hindu faith survived let's try to focus on the tirupati temple and understand its importance while there are many things special about the tirupati temple one thing that stands out from an historical evidence standpoint is the sheer volume of intact and well preserved epigraphical evidence that go back hundreds of years the benefit being this mountain of evidence in the form of inscriptions clearly show us the minutest of the details on how the temple functioned and how the empire's royalty and polity interacted with it as part of evidence and research for this episode i have referred to the official tirupati tirumala devasthanam sources the 1930 published report on the inscriptions of devasthanam collection with illustrations which has an introduction by one of the foremost south indian historians k a nilakanth shastri But the main core of this episode comes from a fantastic research paper by Burton Stein that was published in the Journal of Asian Studies in 1960 and finally a paper by R Somareddy that was published in the Proceedings of the Indian History Congress volume 39 in 1978 In the last episode we saw the social cultural economic importance of Hindu temples in Vijayanagara and rest of India going back to antiquity We also saw how these temples acted as banks lending its bullion to affluent traders and merchants of the day as a capital at high interest rates now we will see with the example of tirupati temple from an economic standpoint 
how these temples played the additional roles of investment banking and agricultural development. We will refer to the epigraphical evidence referred to earlier for an economic analysis and its impact. It's important to note that most of the Tirupati inscriptions detail and deal with the endowments of lands and money. In addition, these inscriptions also detail the modifications to the temple rituals in consequence of the introduction of rituals from the Tamil provinces of the empire and the central place occupied by the temple in the South Indian culture. The epigraphical evidence for the period between 15th and 16th centuries is almost complete. And it is this period that we will focus on, also because this period was golden age for the empire. Between 1456 AD and 1570 AD, the Vijayanagar rulers had granted the temple around a hundred plus villages and huge sums of money as endowments, whose income was used to perform the rituals in the names of over 300 donors. And the temple most importantly used the village and monetary endowments to fund big irrigation projects around Tirupati. In addition to that, the Tirupati temple also sponsored the construction of rest houses, smaller temples, feeding houses for pilgrims who were on the way to the main Tirupati temple. The importance of these irrigation development projects by the temple cannot be understated. In fact, they were extremely crucial to the sustenance and functioning of the temple because the number and the grandeur of the rituals were dependent on the reliable stream of income, which was in turn the result of investment of the endowment funds granted by the crown. Burton Stein hypothesizes the reason for these large endowments in this way. Quote, Without the assurance with which irrigation program provided for the donor of money, it is doubtful whether money endowments for the deities of the temple could have reached the proportions they did." Unquote. In short, what he means is the value and frequency of endowments to the temple was incumbent upon the agricultural development which the temple funded, and that the Vijayanagara rulers mainly gave generous grants for this reason. While what Burton says is logical and makes sense from an economic and statecraft standpoint, I have to politely point out something here. That is, there needn't always be a grand or ulterior motive for devotees, whether royal or not, to donate wealth to the temples or any other religious institution. We will see this by the end of this episode and in fact I will show you how one of the data points provided by Burton himself ends up corroborating my statement. Again, this is not to find fault with the overall analysis of Burton. It's pretty much solid and makes sense. I'm merely pointing out one of his assessments discounting the spiritual and religious nature of these grants might not be totally accurate. Now coming back to the topic, in 1380s, after two centuries as an increasingly important shrine, the temple came under the management of 12 sthanikas or sthanatars or also known as trustees. From 1450s, the function of the temple management changed and adapted significantly considering the fact that Vijayanagara rulers started showering the temple with increasing amounts of grants. This increase was most definitely proportional to the efficiency of the temple management. So this cycle of management efficiency and more grants from the crown made the temple extremely adept at managing wealth. 
This directly or indirectly led to a sort of innovation of various financial instruments to better administer its assets and squeeze more income out of them. To better understand land grants, which were a crucial part of the endowments, we need to understand the prevailing land tenure systems of the 15th and 16th century. The lands granted to the temple had two primary functions. to yield an income with which to maintain a specified ritual service in the name of the donor of the land to provide a productive place to invest funds granted to the temple for the performance of rituals in the name of the donor of the money or bullion there were basically three forms of land tenure systems crown lands which were called bhandarwada that were directly under the imperial administration and the imperial government received part of its revenue The next one was military tenure lands also called as amaram lands held on military service tenure by local chieftains and naikas they had to send part of the revenue of their amaram villages to the imperial treasury and retain the rest for the maintenance costs of imperial soldiers they provided and the next type was lands held on charitable tenure by brahmins also called as brahmadaya then there were temples called as devadana then there were traditional educational institutions or mathas called mathapura one difference between the lands granted to temples and the mathas was the mathas fully owned the lands they were granted and the chief acharya of the matha had full powers on the land deed whereas the lands granted to the temples were held in a trust managed by the temple trustees the temples land deed was held in the name of the deity to whom it was granted so the trustees acted on behalf of the deity with a sort of a special power of attorney there is supposed to have been a fourth tenure system called peasant proprietor tenure there is a possibility that some of the villages granted were held in this tenure again we won't focus much on this as instances of this sort of tenure as per inscriptions is very cursory between 15 09 AD and 1568 AD around 115 villages were granted to the temple for perpetuity in order to provide the income for the rituals the donors for these villages can be mainly divided into three groups state donors temple functionaries local residents and merchants these local residents and merchants were one group Of the 115 villages that were granted in between 1509 to 1568, 54% of them were from state donors and 37% from the temple functionaries. The income from crown villages and villages held on service tenure, which comprised 91% of the villages granted upon the temple, was divided into two shares. A major share, also known as melavaram, and a minor share also known as kilavaram the majority share of the income was used for state or military purposes and the minor share was retained by the cultivators of the land these dual shares represented claims upon the annual harvests of the villages so when a village under crown or service tenure was granted to a temple the major share of the income went to the temple The minor share as before was retained with the cultivators. Examination of the Tirupati inscriptions and those of other South Indian temples during this period 
suggests the temple lands differed with respect to their suitability for investment and development. The most restricted form of temple village tenure was that arising from a grant of land which provided that the donor would retain the right of tenancy over the land and this was known as kaniyachi. It's worth pointing out that these terms melavaram, keelavaram and kaniyachi were in extensive usage even before the Chola period going back to the 8th and 9th centuries, maybe even before that. Another restricted form of tenure of endowed lands was that in which the lands granted represented only a fixed income of specified revenue with no other rights over the income of the village nor power to interfere with its occupants. This was called as srotriyam and the donor of the srotriyam village received this right from the state in recognition of some service or honor. So the Kaniyachi and Srotriyam tenures restricted the capacity of the temple to apply capital investments because in both types the temple received a fixed income regardless of the total income of the land. Throughout the 16th century many state donors granted money to the temple on the understanding that their endowments would be invested back in the lands of the temple. The return or dividends on the investments of the endowed assets to the donor was realized in the ritual service carried out in his name. In short, the donor of the grants earns the privilege to get in the good books of the temple, people and earn spiritual dividends from the deity for rituals he or she sponsored. It's important to make it clear that the donors didn't get any monetary returns. It was purely a symbolic return which nonetheless carried immense weight and value as we will see later. For example, an inscription dated January 20th, 1542 AD contained a long and detailed list of different types of fried rice cake offerings and the cost of such offerings. And the next inscription dated February 10th, 1542 recorded a transaction of large monetary endowment to the temple. Let's look at the inscription in question now. Quote, since you paid the sum of 15,000 Narpanam into the temple treasury this day for the purpose of worshipping Sri Perumal with 300 appapadi yearly as your offering, we shall use this sum for the improvement of tanks and channels in the temple villages and with the income obtained thereby, the above mentioned 300 appapadi shall be prepared and offered in your name. Unquote. From the January inscription, which has a price item list, we gathered that the cost of each appapadi or rice cake offering was 6 panam. A panam being a copper coin and narpanam being a copper coin that was pure and not debased. So applying it to the February inscription, we can deduce that the 300 rice cake offerings cost 1800 panam every year. Since a monetary grant was 15,000 panam, the annual return to the donor in the form of a 300 appapadi offering was equal to 12% of his grant. So the annual return to the donors of money deduced in the above manner varied between 5 and 15% for the years 1535 to 1547 AD with an average of 10% for the period. The fluctuations in return percentage to the donor was incumbent on the earning potential of the villages that were granted to the temple. 
So return to the donor is not to be confused with the net return to the temple after their return to the minor shareholders or whoever the kilabaram has been dispersed. So it's important to mention that the gap between the return to the temple on a monetary endowment and the total return on the money seen as a capital investment in agricultural development was a significant one. For every capital improvement resulting from the investment in a temple village, part of the additional income or product remained with the holder of the minor share of the income of the temple village. Spread over more than 100 villages, this income which varied with the proportions of the major and minor shares would have had a good effect on the standard of living of the cultivators of the village lands in short they had a higher quality of living because of this transactional arrangement now let's look at the monetary endowments to the temple from vijayanagara rulers of the 16th century as the deserve special attention we shall look at the 59 year period between 1509 to 1568 ad as this spans three regional periods of Sri Krishna Devaraya from 1509 to 1529, Achyuta Devaraya from 1530 to 1542, and Sadasivaraya from 1543 to 1568. Sadasivaraya's reign is also known as the rule of Aliya Ramaraya, the supreme region we saw in the first three episodes. If one looks at the recorded monetary endowments based on the epigraphical evidence, then during the period of Sri Krishna Devaraya, the total amount comes to 155,606 panams. The state donors accounting for 33% of the total, temple functionaries accounting for 26%, and residents plus merchants accounting for the remaining 41%. If we now look at a similar breakdown of monetary endowments during the reign of Achyuta Devaraya, the total amount comes to a whopping 469,901 panams. The state donors account for a massive 65% of the total. Temple functionaries at 24% and residents plus merchants at 11%. Let's finally look at the breakdown during the Sadasivaraya period between 1543 to 1568. The total amount comes to 186,606 panams. The state donors account for a mere 20.5%, temple functionaries at 23.5%, and residents plus merchants this time at a whopping 56%. One interesting thing is the constant average of 24% of total monetary endowments with the temple functionaries, even during ups and downs of the empire. The question is, how are they able to contribute so consistently across various periods? The answer to this lies in how the prasadam or the consecrated food was distributed and redistributed through the system. The consecrated food was very much in demand even back in those days. Just like how the laddu, the Tirupati laddu is so much in demand with the devotees visiting Tirupati even today. So back in the 16th century, most of the consecrated food's distribution channels were leased or licensed to special distribution agents called prasadakkars, who mostly happened to be wealthy merchants and some state-appointed agents, who then sold it to pilgrims at a fixed price. The temple functionaries used to convert part of the consecrated food supply 
into a monetary form through the innovative supply chain and distribution instruments. This monetary revenue used to be again pumped back into the temple coffers for the maintenance of the temple and its rituals. And this is how the temple functionaries were able to afford the monetary contributions consistently at 24% across three regional periods. Also, it's important to note that most of the temple functionaries relied on part of the consecrated food to feed themselves and their families. But the thing of real interest for us is the Achyuta Devaraya period, which saw a threefold increase in the total monetary endowments and a twofold increase by the state donors. Let's try to understand why that was the case. First off, Achyuta Devaraya took over the reign after Sri Krishna Devaraya's death. We already know that the great Raya's reign was one of the most prosperous and most stable, which enriched the imperial treasury. This economic advantage clearly carried over to Achyuta Devaraya's reign, which afforded the state to be three times more generous than earlier. Another factor was the spread of temple's fame far and wide, which brought in a lot more bullion into the temple coffers. The temple managers also seem to have preferred monetary endowments from far-off donors as it was easier to manage the bullion than managing a far-off land endowments. Another really interesting aspect can also be uncovered by doing a deeper breakdown of the state donors. Looking at the epigraphical evidence, one can see that 53% out of the 65% state donors happened to be generals of Vijayanagara army. So what might be the reason for this lopsided contribution by the generals during Achyuta Devaraya's reign? They had hardly accounted for an average of 7% in the periods preceding and following Achyuta Devaraya's. The clue for this lies in the tug-of war between Achyuta Devaraya and Aliya Ramaraya. We had already discussed this briefly in one of the previous episodes. We saw in detail how political intrigues churn had accompanied Ramaraya's rise. As we saw previously, in 1529, after the death of Sri Krishnadevaraya, there was a failed attempt by Ramaraya to unseat the nominated successor Achyutadevaraya with his puppet candidate Sadasivaraya. After Achyutadevaraya prevailed in the succession duel by becoming the monarch, Till 1535, it was mostly calm between both these factions, with Ram Raya retaining significant administrative control while advising the reigning monarch as a chief counsellor, though it was an uneasy collaboration. So with the death of the infant son of Sri Krishna Devaraya in 1535, who was one of the powered ships for Ramaraya, Achyuta Devaraya now cut loose Ramaraya as his chief advisor and slowly started turning the screws on him. It's well recorded that between 1536 to 1542, Vijayanagara Empire saw an intense power struggle between these two power centers in the royal court, with Ramaraya trying to overthrow Achyuta Devaraya and replace him with the puppet Sadasivaraya. So one must be wondering how does all of this relate to the monetary endowments in Tirupati? So this is where my listeners, I will say that this mystery can be solved by following the money trail. The explanation for 53% of Vijayanagara army generals being the major state donors during Achyuta Devaraya's reign lies in this internal power struggle 
During the six-year internal strife, significant numbers of nobility and army generals were not in favor of a military coup or overthrow attempts by Ramaraya. As they rejected the powerful regent, weak puppet, king combination and were themselves apprehensive of Ramaraya's powerful clout. So to neutralize Ramaraya politically and at the same time display their allegiance to the Chuta Devaraya, who was a reigning monarch, most of the generals donated huge amounts of monetary grants to the Tirupati temple in the name of the king. The very act of publicly making significant contributions to a temple that was close to heart of the Vijayanagar rulers was a signal by the generals that they supported the king politically and militarily and that they had no intention of siding with the king's powerful political rival and overthrowing him. These generous public donations to the Tirupati temple also served another clever purpose for Achyuta Devaraya. If you remember in one of the past episodes on Ramaraya, I had mentioned how Chandragiri, which is now in Andhra Pradesh, was the power base of Ramaraya. And the close proximity of Tirupati to Chandragiri plays into this power game. With the generous endowments to Tirupati temple, Ramaraya was deprived of any public sympathy or support for his cause from the populace of Tirupati due to Achyuta Devaraya's PR masterstroke and hence winning the battle of perceptions by defeating Ramaraya on his own political base. So we can see clearly the Tirupati temple in the 16th century also acted as a place to record political loyalties through worship and gifts to the deity. But Burton claims Tirupati temple acted more as a place to record political loyalties and less as a center of worship. This is where I have to politely quip that Mr. Burton has no idea how much Hindus love their deities and temples. So post Talikota, when the economic engine of Vijayanagara Empire degenerated, logically the endowments to the temple nosedived, and the ardent devotees across India or across its empire generously picked up the huge tab. And this evidence comes from the epigraphical data presented by Burton himself. Though I am mildly surprised that Burton chose to not give this crucial aspect the attention it deserves and instead explained it away in a weak manner. You see, in the period of 1540 to 1568, the local residents plus merchants of Tirupati had accounted for 56% of the grants. That was almost six-fold increase than the previous period of Achyuta Devaraya's reign. This evidence weakens Burton's own opinion about the temple being primarily a place to score political brownie points. It was a major center of worship, period, no doubt about that. This illustrates a classic issue of intellectual blind spot among a lot of well-intentioned Western researchers when it comes to India's civilizational past. There are things that one can understand better by being an insider to the native traditions, culture and by experiencing it from within. The tendency and temptation to apply Western frameworks, cultural lenses or templates loaded with biases against Hindus and India ends up contaminating the otherwise fine analysis. There are many well-published Western Indologists who have successfully understood 
the essence of Indian civilization a lot better than many Hindus themselves. By genuinely internalizing the essence and intricacies of the Hindu traditions and culture. Burton Stein, I feel, added needless masala, claiming Tirupati acted less as a center of worship, more as a political loyalty register. How does one prove the former conclusively? without considering the experiences and memories of devotees or pilgrims themselves. Burton hasn't shown any evidence to that effect to bolster his opinion. While there is substantial vernacular evidence in form of literature to prove the importance of Tirupati to an ordinary devotee or royalty alike. So this particular aspect or the assessment of Burton Stein is something we have to take with a pinch of salt. It was a mere opinion and it wasn't backed by any particular evidence. It's also worth mentioning that Burton throughout his paper on the Tirupati temple's economic analysis strangely keeps referring to the temple's administration in the 16th century Vijayanagara ruled Tirupati as secular management. He parrots this at least five times in his paper. Let me quote a few of them so you get the idea. Quote, the development of an efficient secular management of the temple was also closely related to the irrigation program." Unquote. Here is the next excerpt. Quote, Through this century of rapid growth, the basic secular management of the temple remained intact. The management of the temple's secular affairs under this Thanatar was created in the late 14th century when festivals and food offerings were few. Unquote. There are at least three more similar excerpts like these where Burton keeps stressing on the secular nature of Tirupati temple's management during the empire. The question I ask is, what does Burton actually mean when he parrots secular management? Like a mantra. The normal definition of secular would be something that is devoid of religion or where no religious viewpoint is promoted or adopted or something which remains neutral in the matters of religion. Now what I don't understand is, in the 16th century India, how can the management of such a sacred and eminent temple have adopted an irreligious or devotionless stance when it comes to servicing the deity and its assets? Why is Burton in such a hurry to disconnect the temple management from its faith and deity? Does Burton mean to say that the 12 Sthanathars or trustees doing the Lord Venkateshwara's work were only and only concerned with managing the wealth and lands? If so, who were these Sthanikas? Were they 16th century Charvakas, Ethis, or some identityless beings who just crunched financial numbers? In my opinion, Burton was only showing his ideological bias in this form. His book, A History of India, which was published posthumously in 1998 after his death in 1996, lays this bias bare open to see. But those interested can refer to the essays under the section called Another India, in which he shows his fangs. So in light of this analysis about Burton, I will opine that the very fact Tirupati Temple became a place to record political loyalties 
is a proof of Tirupati's preeminence and importance to the spiritual, religious and political realms. Tirupati's importance and long legacy starting from 300 AD cannot be understated. Literally a thousand plus years of existence even before the birth of Vijayanagara Empire made the Vijayanagara rulers take note of it and they took over the mantle of its defense and patronage once they came to power. This only gave the Vijayanagara rulers even more legitimacy and prestige in the eyes of devotees of Tirupati and citizens of its empire. Also, it's important to note that the 15th and 16th century India was going through a resurgence of Vaishnavism leading to the Bhakti movement and Tirupati was certainly one of the centers for it. The 15th century saint Annamaya is a shining instance of this phenomenon. The fact that even 450 years after the collapse of its biggest patron, the Vijayanagara Empire, the Tirupati temple is still the most visited and richest temple in the world as we saw in the beginning of the episode. Its significance in the eyes of its devotees has stood the test of time. The ardent devotees of Lord Balaji having now replaced the erstwhile empire as his sole donors to it. We will conclude this episode here and I sincerely hope my listeners have gotten a good sense of not just the importance of Tirupati temple to Vijayanagara empire, its role from a spiritual and economic standpoint, but also the rich legacy of Tirupati and what it means to Hindus worldwide. A huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. If you like the content, please hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review for the show wherever it is that you are listening to this podcast. In the next episode, we will probe the nature of taxation with respect to Hindu temples in the Telugu provinces under Vijayanagara rule. Till then, this is your host and narrator, Narendra Vikram, signing off. Hope you have a wonderful week ahead.